Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ. But we pray that you would be honoured above all things. We thank you for that wonderful reading we've just had from Colossians that speaks so highly of Jesus. Lord, may he be thought of in such lofty terms in our own heart and our own actions. Lord, we pray as we look at this figure in history of St. Nicholas this morning, we pray that we might not just learn history and information, but Lord, that we might have our hearts ignited with the same passion and desire to know Jesus, to make him known, and to honour him above all else. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't mean to break the news to you, but today it is 33 days until Christmas Day. Or as it's more commonly known, 32 days until the blokes start to do Christmas shopping. (laughs) Christmas, eh? Good old St. Nicholas. What a magical time of the year. That name, St. Nicholas... Everyone knows it. Everybody's heard it. It's so common. It's so familiar. But while people are very familiar with the name, I get the impression that most people probably don't know too much about who he was or what he did. Now, I was going to to sort of test the waters and ask people what they know about St. Nicholas, but given that I've promised that I wouldn't say anything regarding modern correlations... The only way I can hinder what is said or not said is to not allow anyone else other than myself to speak. So I'm not going to ask for your thoughts about St Nicholas, but my guess from conversations that I've had with people is that most people's understanding of who St Nicholas was and what he did probably varies somewhere between vague and not much. Now some of you may even saw the title for this morning's sermon and thought, Steve, what are you doing? Jesus is the reason for the season. Why are we even talking about St. Nicholas at all? Now, you'd be right. Jesus is the reason for the season. Even though the December 25th date is unlikely to be the day in which he was born, there is something to celebrate that the Saviour has entered into the mess of this world to provide the way by which we can be reconciled to God. But you would be wrong if you were to think that a sermon speaking about St. Nicholas would be unhelpful for helping us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. To use Eastgate Bible Church's mission statement, St. Nicholas was a man who knew the word, lived the word, proclaimed the word for the glory of the name. And what I thought was interesting as I started to think about this very recently, I saw a lot of very close correlations to the three books of the Bible that we've most recently looked at at Eastgate Bible Church. We'll see some direct connections to the book of Revelation, 1 Samuel and Acts. My prayer is in our time looking together at St. Nicholas that we'll actually be encouraged to better love and serve Jesus and one another and those around us. So we're going to look through St. Nicholas as a child who was dedicated to God, a partner in tribulation, kingdom and endurance, language which may be familiar to you from Revelation, 
a zeal for God, his word, and his people. And then we're going to wrap it up, enjoying Jesus this year at Christmas. A child dedicated to God. Let me set the scene for you. Third century was actually a pretty rough period of time. There was a couple, Epiphanius and his wife, Nona, who lived on the north coast of the Mediterranean Sea of what is modern-day Turkey in a town called Myra. They were a Christian couple who came to faith through the church of Myra. Now, what is particularly interesting in tying it back to the book of Acts and particularly the section of Acts that we've looked this year, in Acts chapter 27, the gospel came to Myra on Paul's third missionary journey through the Apostle Paul. So the church was established, the gospel came to the church of Myra through the Apostle Paul. 200 years later, that same church is continuing to go forward and go forward strongly. And this couple has come to faith through the ministry of that church. Like many in the Bible, and even today, they had a prayer that they were praying day in, day out. Dear God, bless me, bless us with a child. Now, I said there were some connections that take us back to 1 Samuel. Remember, Hannah was exactly the same. In the first opening chapter, she's there in the tabernacle and Eli thought she was drunk because of the way in which he was praying. We read that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That was Hannah's prayer. If you were to to bless me with a child, I will dedicate him to the service of the Lord. And that's the exact prayer that Epiphanius and Nona were praying. God, we'd love a child. If you were to bless us with a son, we will dedicate this boy to the service of the Lord. Now you could think, a lovely, godly couple. Surely that year they had a child. They prayed that prayer consistently for 30 years until they had that child, which, no surprises, was named Nicholas. Sadly, while Nicholas was a boy, there was a plague, how very 2020, that swept through their area that killed Nicholas's mother and father. It was a difficult time to live at the best of times. People were struggling in general. There was no social services. There was no Centrelink payments. The social services of the third century primarily came from the church. Living out their call to love their neighbours, to to care for the widow, the oppressed, the orphan. And not too far down the track, there was another death. The Bishop of Myra. Nicholas was one of the up to a thousand who attended that funeral of a man who was highly respected. Now, when it comes to replacing a bishop, it's, it's quite important. A bishop was someone who was a leader over all of the churches of a particular town. It's not something you just casually do and say, who wants to take the role of bishop? Put your hand up. I see that hand. It wasn't quite like that. No, the, the bishops 
from all of the synod were deeply seeking God in prayer, asking who would be the one to enter into this role. But there was no consensus. There was no strong sense of leading of this was the person to take on that role. Then one of the bishops, who was probably one of the most respected within the synod, had a dream. At which point you think, oh, really? A dream? You're going to make a, such a big decision about the appointment on the, of a bishop based on a dream? Now, I've only acted once in my entire life on the basis of a dream. I had a recurring dream that I had a brain tumour and I thought, just to be sure, I'll go and get it checked out. You can imagine that's an interesting conversation to have with your GP as to why you're going there. And it, as it turned out, there was nothing to be worried about. So there you go. The one time that I've acted on a dream, there was nothing to it. So I'm not saying broadly, do whatever your dreams say. But the dream which he had was to go to the church in Myra and the first person who comes to the church who answers to the name Nicholas, that is the one who's to be the bishop. Now you're probably thankful that Nicholas Cummins, was, the honey badger, wasn't the first guy to walk up to that church. And you might think, man, what a shocking way to appoint a bishop. And if you're shocked by that, I'll tell you who was even more shocked. Imagine Nicholas when he goes along to that church. By the way, I've had a dream. You're the bishop. <laughs> Understandably, he bolted just as quick as you would if you turned up to church and said, by the way, you're an elder. But a church official prevented him from leaving and he actually took on the role. He took on the role and served as bishop. And he grew up to be a very well-revered and respected bishop in the church of Myra. It was said of him that whenever he spoke of Jesus, it was like receiving precious gems. The way he spoke of Jesus changed the way people think. They saw something of the beauty of Christ in the way in which he spoke of Jesus. But he also had a deep heart for those who were downtrodden, oppressed, and vulnerable. And we're not talking about sort of like he, he spoke about it occasionally. He lived it. Like he was regularly giving of his time, his money, his efforts to help others other than himself. Not because he was a bishop, and you, know, you have to be seen to be doing the right thing, but out of the natural disposition of his heart, that is what he would do. And in particular... He took the advice of Jesus, don't do things for a show to attract the attention or the respect of others. He did those things in secret. And also much like Jesus, remember I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark with Miller at bedtime lately, the amount of times you see repeated that Jesus tells people not to tell anyone about what has happened. And they, of course they can't help but do it. So even though he did these things in secret, the people who were the recipients began to talk. And it started to take effect on all of the people around. This idea of giving generously, but not expecting credit and doing it in secret. This was the boy dedicated to the Lord, St Nicholas, Bishop of Myra. But serving the Lord faithfully is no guarantee that life's going to be easy. We're now have ticked over into the 4th century, like early 300s. There's no Bibles. 
People don't just pull out a, a Bible out of their back pocket or go down to the local Kurong. As a bishop, he may have had access to some of the manuscripts, probably not all of them. I hope he had access to the book of Revelation. It would have been exactly what he needed to hear to encourage him in his setting. Remember John's description of himself in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation? It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John saw himself as a life that was characterised by tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance. The Christian experience is one of tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance in varying degrees depending on where you live. But that was Nicholas's experience as well. St Nicholas, when he was in his early 30s, the emperors were Galerius, drop my mind there for a moment, and Diocletian. And these guys were known to be the harshest of the harsh towards Christians. It's not a good time to be a Christian leader. Galerius reigned from 305 to 311, known to be a great persecutor of Christians. Now, Rome wasn't the big thriving empire that it was at this point in time. And Galerius and and others are starting to ask the question, why isn't Rome dominating the way like she used to? And then someone put to them this suggestion, the reason why Rome is not going so well is because of the Christians. Now, you might think, What's that got to do with whether there's Christians going on around the place? This is a military thing then. They're losing the battles. Why blame the Christians? The answer that was put to him is, the gods are angry. Because these Christians are going around saying there's only one God and all other claims to be God are false. So Galerius sought an oracle from their god, Apollo. And what they got as an oracle was out of nonsense. He could make no sense of it. And so they interpreted that as saying, man, Apollo is so mad he can't even put a sentence together. We better get rid of these Christians. And so between Galerius and Diocletian, they kind of had two options. The options they were actually debating back and forth, do we just kill every single Christian or do we just say that no Christian can hold public office and no Christian can own a home? so that they've got no influence on society whatsoever. Not exactly, you know, a great choice between one of those two. In the end, they issued an edict which kind of swung more towards that second one, that they can't hold an office or own a home. But it also says, you cannot worship Jesus. That's kind of fundamental to being a Christian. You can't have churches, you can't pray any books or literature associated with Christianity. So that's not just manuscripts. That would be letters, anything that contains Christian material were to be burnt. Couldn't hold an office in public life and you couldn't own a house. And any disobedience to any of those commands, you you were to be killed. So if you were to worship Jesus, killed. You were to gather in any form as a church, killed. You keep hold of anything written down that speaks about Jesus, killed. It was a plan to wipe Christianity out. Now remember Jesus said, 
I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So if you've ever been one of those people who researches all the manuscripts and how things have got together in the formation of the Bible and you've asked the question, how come there are not so many manuscripts before the year 310? Now you know why. Because there was a, a, a Roman Empire edict, anything needed to be burnt. The fact that we have some that still exist says something of the value that people placed upon the manuscripts that they did have. That people would hold on to them at risk of their own life. So what did Nicholas do? He's a bishop, he's a leader in a church. Does he go into hiding? Because he's going to die if he worships Jesus, does anything, encourages people, speaks about Jesus. Well, he had opportunity to, but he refused to. He said, I am a leader of the church of Jesus Christ. His people need people to encourage them, to help them during this time, not to run away. So he insisted on staying and continuing in his ministry. And no surprise, he was arrested, put in prison, and tortured for eight years. When I say torture, I don't mean he, he wasn't, didn't get fed much and he didn't get to see a couple of AFL grand finals. He was tortured to the extent where they'd, they'd kind of pushed him to the point where he's about to lose conscience and he's up of it so they could just drag it out for eight years. Constantly being asked, you need to bow down and worship the emperor. And he would insist, I will not worship the emperor. I will worship Jesus Christ alone. A little bit later on, there was an edict of Milan in 313, which called for a tolerance towards Christians. Nicholas was released from prison, a very visibly different man, but a man who was strongly recognised for his convictions, for his integrity and his faithfulness. He was a man with zeal for God, his word and his people. He remained the highly respected Bishop of Myra. He was still deeply concerned for those who were downtrodden, oppressed and vulnerable. His next-door neighbour, who once had a business, lost his business, lost all of his sense of income and his financial stability. And on top of that, this man had three daughters who were coming of age to get married. Now, things are a little bit different these days. In the 4th century, men did not pursue a woman they were interested in. They didn't swipe left or swipe right the father of the, of the girls would offer, approach a man and say, I will offer you this price to marry my daughter. So they might say, Jeremy, if you'd like to marry Tanya, we will give you three cows. And you might say, well, 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 the, some other dad's offered me five cows or I don't know. So to be without money but have three daughters of married age means that he couldn't offer them into marriage. And as cruel as it sounds, at that point in time, if you were unable to pay a dowry price, you would often, they would have to be sold into slavery or prostitution. Now, this guy was a godly man, much like Nick's parents, as in St. Nicholas, and I don't say Nick's, why not? Prayed diligently 
that God would provide a way that his daughters could be married. Now, St. Nicholas was aware of the dilemma. We've seen before he's a guy who liked to do things for the benefits of others, but to do them secretly. He sold a lot of his own personal possessions. He wasn't a rich man. Just don't think bishop means lots of money. Um, certainly wasn't that way then, and it shouldn't be that way now if it is. He sold, he gave much of his own things, and with the gold that he received for those things, on three consecutive nights, he placed a bag of gold in his neighbor's house so that his neighbor would be able to pay a dowry price so every single one of his daughters would not have to go down the path of slavery or something else that they might enter into marriage. Now, the neighbour got a little bit sus after day two. So the third night, he decided to stay awake to see what happened. And as the gold arrived, he chased this man down the road only to find out that it was St Nicholas who had been selling his own things to free his neighbour's daughters from a pathway towards slavery. After what was the roughest time under Galerius and Diocletian, Constantine was the next emperor. Now, it's questionable Constantine's claims to faith in many ways. That's not an issue we're going to talk about today. But what we can say is he was sympathetic towards Christians. He wasn't nasty to them. In fact, he decided that Christianity would be the official religion of the Roman Empire. During his reign there was one of the most significant theological debates arose within the church. The question was this. Is Jesus actually fully God or was Jesus just the most special thing that God created? That was a real debate that was roaring in the church at that time. The line of argument that was saying Jesus was a created being and the most highly exalted created being was led by a man from Alexandria in Egypt called Arius. Constantine probably didn't know his theology too well, but he did know something about having a strong, united Rome. So for the first time ever, there was a worldwide gathering of all of the bishops, Constantine even willing to pay for them to, to travel to get there, to sort this out, he realised disunity in the church, bad thing, let's figure out who is this Jesus. Let's, let's come to a conclusion that we all agree on. There were 318 bishops there at this council in 325 AD. Constantine is noted to have made this statement. There are three pillars of the world, Anthony in Egypt, Nicholas of Myra, and James in Assyria. So of those 318 bishops that were gathered there, in Constantine's mind, St. Nicholas was in the top three of most significant, respected bishops who were gathered there. Now, it wasn't a quick solution. They were gathered there for at least a month, and there were times when it looked like it could have swayed either way. Because Arius was quite an educated man, and he was able to put forward his case in quite a convincing manner. If you've ever had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness about Jesus, you'll find their argumentation is actually quite good. And they'll probably argue exactly the same way in which Arius argued. 
But in the end of that time together, of the 318 bishops, only one voted on the side of Arius. 316 voted to say that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, it wasn't without some drama. Anyone who's seen people engage in robust theological discussions, sometimes it gets a little bit heated. Damascus, who was an Athenian monk, records this. The emperor was sitting on his throne, flanked by 159 bishops to his left and 159 to his right. Arian was presenting his views with great vigour and detail. As St Nicholas observed the scene, the bishops listened to Arius in complete silence and without interrupting the discourse. Outraged and prompted by his saintly vigour, he left his seat, walked up to Arius, faced him squarely and slapped him in the face. That is St Nicholas. He looks around, sees all these other bishops here and thinks, are you hearing the same thing I'm hearing and you're saying and doing absolutely nothing? And with his saintly vigour, I like that expression, he went up and he slapped Arius across the face. He couldn't handle that someone was so dishonouring Jesus and mishandling the scriptures. That's how highly he viewed Jesus and how highly he viewed the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that's the way that you should deal with those situations. But the law at that time, to raise your hand against the bishop, you would have that hand chopped off. Nicholas was placed in prison. He was released with his hand intact. But man, he was a passionate man. He wouldn't settle for someone saying something less of his Jesus he held so dearly. Towards the end of that council, they wrote a statement, a creed, that summarised who they believed Jesus to be. It's what we call the Nicene Creed. It's been adapted a number of times, but the original one in 325, except, of course, translated into English, said this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten. That is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and he will come to judge the living and dead and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the, the thing they'd really gathered to talk around was Jesus, but they thought they'd better put a uh, on the end, and, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, just so he doesn't get left out. Then they added a bit on the end, just to correct those who held the other view. But as for those who say, there was a time when he was not, and before being when he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or those who assert that the Son of God is a different hypostasis or substance or created or the subject to alteration or change, these are the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. So not only do they state about who Jesus was, they say, you believe otherwise, we say you are accursed. That's pretty passionate. 
Now, you probably heard different adaptations of that creed. It did get revised a number of times, and we're going to sing a revised and modernised adaptation of some of those truths. But first, we're going to think about a few points about St Nicholas and enjoying Jesus at Christmas. I know the feeling. You, you look around at Christmas time, and sometimes it gets a bit frustrating, doesn't it? Like we know that Jesus is the reason for the season, but as we look around, he doesn't really seem to be foremost and up front, does he? Why is he so absent in all the things that we see in here if, if he is the reason? Now, you could apply your saintly vigour and go around and start get a bit of slapping going on. I would suggest there are better options. Maybe a conversation regarding St Nicholas might come up. And then they think, oh, no, I've said that in front of the Christian, they're going to be all... And then you surprise them. I love St Nicholas. I'd love to be like St Nicholas. Do you know what he was like? Do you know what he did? But whenever you look around and you see modern adaptations of St Nicholas, rather than getting angry and get your saintly vigour on and slapping, can I encourage you to be reminded about what this St Nicholas did? A man who viewed Jesus so highly that he spoke so commonly of him. And the way in which he spoke of him, people said it was like receiving precious gems. One who thought so highly of Jesus that even when the greatest persecution would come, it would say to worship him, you will lose your life. He says, I will do no other. I will worship Jesus. I will encourage others to worship Jesus. I will read the scriptures. One who couldn't bear to hear Jesus spoken of in such a way that undermines who he truly is. Who couldn't bear to listen to someone taking the scriptures and misusing them for their own benefit. Because this is the Jesus. God in the flesh. The Son of God who entered into our world, who came and bore the death for sinful mankind, you and I, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father. The one whom they are reading from Colossians said, reconcile us to himself. You and I, who were hostile, living as though we didn't care about him, living as though we didn't care that he claims to be the, the owner and ruler of all things, living as though we were the most important. This one, this high and mighty, the greatest, stood in our place that we might have peace with God, reconcile to him, have the perfect righteousness of Christ, but that we too might have that same passion to make him known, to be a blessing to those who are around us and to esteem him above all things. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes it's refreshing to not only to learn something about a name that we were familiar with, but to be reminded of how 
high and exalted you truly are and deserve to be responded to as such. Forgive us from times when we have made you common or that maybe even unintentionally we have exalted other things above you. Whether it's our own personal comfort, our personal pursuits. Lord, we thank you for the example of St. Nicholas. A man who first and foremost would worship you, everything else falls around that. May that shape our hearts and minds. And may as we see various different things around this Christmas, may we be reminded of these things, that we might seek you, hold you precious, and proclaim you to a world that is, does not know you, that they may have the greatest Christmas ever this year. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.